Philippians chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses 10 through 13 this morning. The title of this message is The Secret of Contentment, and how appropriate that is on a morning as hot as it is in here. Learning to be content in an environment that is not very easy to be content in. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Before I read these, let me just say that from a personal standpoint, I have been looking forward for a long time to this very passage of Scripture, and there is much here for us to learn. Let me read them as we begin our time together. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me, Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Someone has written, a contented mind is a continual feast. Another person has written, contentment is an inexhaustible treasure. One of the things that we would all love to experience in life is contentment. Contentment is a spiritual attitude. It is the state of mind of being satisfied regardless of one's circumstances. But for the majority of people, contentment eludes them. Contentment is sort of like that desert mirage that somebody can see from a distance but never quite arrives to it. And to properly understand contentment, we must also understand its counterpart. The opposite of contentment is what? To covet. You might say to be discontent, that would be obvious, but the opposite of to be content would be to covet. And one of the things that Jesus taught is that the human heart naturally covets rather than finds contentment. According to Mark 7, Jesus is speaking, he says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and deeds of coveting. We all know what it is to be discontent. We all know what it is to be dissatisfied. We all know what it is to have a heart that covets because that is what comes naturally to us. As that famous band of theologians known as the Rolling Stones once said, I can't get no satisfaction. Now that is really bad English. My spell checker did not like that but it no doubt expresses the reality of the human heart. Someone has said most people aren't content with their lot even when they get a lot. And that is true. It is particularly true in our American society. We are so prosperous and affluent, and yet the more we get, the more discontent we are. In fact, we are more discontent than deprived societies around the world. We are discontent with what we look like. We are discontent with our jobs. We are discontent with our homes. We are discontent with our families. And the list could go on and on and on. 
According to one person, about 100 years ago, it was determined that the average American had about 70 wants. That same person did another survey two generations later, and it was discovered that the average American at that time had about 500 wants. So in two generations in America, we go from 70 wants per American to about 500. We have an ever-increasing list of things that we desire and want. It used to be said that our wants exceeded our needs, but now we would say our needs exceed our wants. How is that? Because of commercials and marketing and advertisement, we now need more than what we want. And the thing is, you didn't know you needed them until somebody told you you did. You didn't know you needed that brand new 2011 or 2012 vehicle until you watched the commercial and it said, you need this vehicle. You didn't know you needed the latest iPhone until you saw the advertisement showing you all the new bells and whistles on the new iPhone. I mean, just a couple of months ago, I got this software program called BibleWorks. It's version 8. And it is a tremendous piece of software. It has Bible study tools, extensive language resources, and I'm learning how to use it. Well, while I was in the middle of studying for this message, I took a break, checked my email, and guess what I found in my inbox? An email for BibleWorks version 9. Like I said, I just got 8. I used to have something like 3 years ago. I went up to 8. And now the email saying, here's Bible Works version 9. I began to look at all the new bells and whistles that had all these new things that version 8 didn't have. And guess what my heart began to do? To be discontent. That's how our society works. That's what it's like to live in this part of the world. We are bombarded with messages that say, what you have now isn't good enough. You need something newer, you need something bigger, you need something better. And all of that advertisement and commercialization feeds our already discontent hearts. But, beloved, let me say this. It is the will of God that you be content. It is not the will of God that you be discontent. It is the will of God that you be content. And this morning we are going to begin to look at a passage that teaches us about the rare Christian jewel of contentment. Now as we come to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10, we come to the final portion of the body of this letter. This is a new section that goes from verse 10 all the way down to verse 20. And in this section, Paul turns to one of the main reasons that he wrote this letter, namely to thank the Philippians for their generous gift to him. You will remember that the Philippians sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus. We learned about him in chapter 2. The Philippians sent him from Philippi hundreds of miles away all the way to the city of Rome in order to give Paul a very generous financial gift. And now, in verses 10 through 20, Paul expresses his gratitude, his joy, 
his thanksgiving. Essentially, what we have in verses 10 through 20 is Paul's thank you note to the church in Philippi. But in the midst of saying thank you to them, Paul takes the opportunity to address the theme of contentment, which we will look at today, and further he addresses the theme of giving and receiving, which we will look at next time. In the previous paragraph here in Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9, Paul addressed the theme of proper Christian conduct, and he did so in a series, a barrage of commands, one imperative after another. But in this new section, verses 10 through 20, there is not a single command. No commands. It is a very personal part of the letter in which Paul teaches us to be content, not by giving us a command to be content, but listen, by giving an example of contentment, namely in his own life. In verse 9, Paul says, The things you have seen in me, practice these things. And beloved, contentment is one of the things we see in Paul that we are to practice. If you'll look at your bulletin, you'll see the outline. We have three components of contentment. It involves being confident in God's providence, being satisfied with God's provision, and being enabled by God's power. So we begin with component number one, being confident in God's providence in verse 10. Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Once again, Paul returns to the great theme of joy, This is an epistle of joy, and it describes the Apostle Paul's response to the arrival of Epaphroditus. Paul was already in a state of rejoicing, as we have learned from the book. He is rejoicing all throughout this letter. But when Epaphroditus arrives with the gift from the Philippian church, Paul's level of joy and rejoicing abounds you will observe that Paul's joy here is intense. This is the first time Paul uses the adverb greatly to describe his rejoicing. He is already rejoicing, but when Epaphroditus arrives, his rejoicing abounds to the level of greatly rejoicing. Paul is erupting with joy when he sees the face of this precious brother. And further, we understand about Paul's joy its direction in verse 10. Where is it directed? It's in the Lord. Even though this gift came from the Philippians and was delivered by Epaphroditus all the way from Philippi to Rome, Paul understood that this gift ultimately came from above. It's not ultimately from Philippi. It's not ultimately from Epaphroditus. It is ultimately from the Lord to whom he rejoices greatly in. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and so every time we receive a good gift, we are to ultimately rejoice in God who gave it to us. So Paul continues in verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Now some critics of the Bible, and there are no lack of them, some critics of the Bible say that Paul is rebuking the Philippians here. They would read Paul to say something like this, Well, it's about time you sent a gift. I've been waiting a long time, and it's finally here. What took you so long? 
That isn't what Paul is saying at all. There is no hint of rebuke here. There is nothing in Paul but thankfulness and joy and rejoicing. And he recognizes that the Philippians, as they have given him this gift, have not been able to give it to him until now. You'll note the word revived. Their concern for Paul has revived. It's a horticulture term. It means to blossom. It means to bloom again. The idea is of a tree that blooms in the spring after the winter. So Paul is saying that your concern for me has always been there, but now it has bloomed. It has blossomed like after the season of winter. The seed of their concern was always in their heart, but it did not have an opportunity to flourish until now. He says, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. You were concerned before. You've always been concerned, but you have not had the opportunity. At this point in Paul's ministry, it had been about 10 years since he began his ministry in Philippi in Acts 16. And he planted the church there. And when Paul first left Philippi and endeavored on further missionary tours, they gave him several financial gifts. But since then, they've not been able to provide him with anything. And that has now been the better part of 10 years. But Paul does not view their lack of support as a lack of concern. They'd always been concerned about him, but he understood that they lacked the opportunity to provide any material support during these years. Now, why? Why was it that they lacked the opportunity? Paul doesn't tell us. We don't know. We do know that the Philippians were poor, so that may have been the reason why they lacked the opportunity. Maybe they didn't have anybody to send from Philippi all the way to Rome, which was a very difficult and dangerous trip. As you know, Epaphroditus almost died on this trip. But the point is this. Paul understood the reason they hadn't supported him until now is because they were providentially hindered. They were providentially hindered. Paul had full confidence in God's providence, which was why he was able to be content. Listen, in order for you to be content, you must have full confidence in the providence of God. Apart from such confidence, you will never be content. Paul understood that the times and the seasons of life were in the hands of God. Paul understood that his steps were directed by God Everything in his life was governed by God for his glory and for our good. And when you understand that about God and about life, then you can have a heart that is at rest, that is quiet, that is satisfied, that is content. Paul knew what it was to wait upon the Lord because the Lord was in charge of it all. So the first component of contentment is being fully confident in the providence of God. The second component in verse 11, being satisfied with God's provision. Notice in verse 11, not that I speak from want. What a curious thing to say. 
After expressing this great level of rejoicing in verse 10, Paul gives an immediate disclaimer. In effect, Paul says, now don't misunderstand me. I didn't really need the gift. Now again, critics of the Bible jump all over this and say Paul is being rude. He's being rude. That's not the case. What he is simply saying is that before the gift arrived, he wasn't in need. He wasn't in need. He already had enough. Now, mind you that Paul was living on bare subsistence. He was living on very little. And he says, I don't rejoice in the Lord because I was needy or because I needed your gift. Why? For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In other words, the reason why I didn't need your gift is because before the gift came, my heart was in the condition of contentment. So it's not a slap in the face. It's not a rebuke to the Philippians at all. It is a statement. It is an affirmation of the spiritual condition of Paul's heart at the time that the gift arrived, namely contentment. He's already got enough, he says. Not because he had so much, but because he was content. Listen, being in Roman confinement, Paul was needy, but he wasn't needy. If you were to observe his life from the outside, you would say, that is a needy man externally, circumstantially. But on the inside, Paul says, I'm not needy. Why? Because he is satisfied with whatever the Lord provides for him, even if it is little, even if it is small. He says, in whatever circumstances I am, I am content. How could this be? I mean, how could this be? Because, look at the language, he learned to be content. Long before Epaphroditus came, Paul had learned to be content. Let me ask you, have you learned that? Have you learned that lesson? Being content was not something that was natural for Paul. It was something that he learned to be. So if you're not content this morning, here's hope. You can learn to be. That's what Paul did. He learned contentment. It's not something that happened overnight. It was something that God himself taught him in the life that he lived. Now let's focus for a moment on the word content. The word means, literally, self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. The idea is to be independent of circumstances, external circumstances, to be satisfied no matter what circumstances you are in. One Christian asked another Christian, how are you doing? Dolefully, he replied, 
oh, fairly well under the circumstances. The other Christian responded by saying, I am sorry that you are under the circumstances. The Lord would have you live above your circumstances. That's the idea here. To be content is to not live under your circumstances. It is to live above them. You see, Paul is not content because of his circumstances. He is content because he is above them. He is over them. He is not ruled by them. His joy, his rejoicing, the state of his heart is not dictated by the circumstances of his life. His contentment is independent of good and pleasant circumstances. This word content is a very interesting word. As I've already said, it means self-sufficient. It is a word that was used very heavily in Paul's day by the Stoics. You have heard the term Stoic or Stoicism. Well, that comes from this Greek school of philosophy known as the Stoics of Paul's day. According to the Stoics, they regarded contentment, listen, as the essence of all virtue. According to the Stoics, contentment was the attitude of the wise person who had become independent of all things and all people relying on himself. So to the Stoic, to be content was to be self-reliant, to be in need of nothing circumstantially. It was prized by them. The Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius, you know that name, He described his adoptive father as the ideal Stoic man. And one of his traits was this, that he was self-sufficient in all things. He didn't need anything. He was self-reliant. He was self-sufficient. The Roman statesman Seneca claimed that whereas the wise man might want friends, he had no need of them because ultimately he was self-sufficient. Don't need anything, according to Seneca. That's the prize virtue. One Stoic writer said this, and this is very important, and I'll quote him. Begin with a cup or a household vessel. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself. And if you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. And if you go on long enough and if you try hard enough, you'll come to a state when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. Stoicism. Stoicism. It is the attitude of self-dependence, self-reliance to live free from external circumstances, including relationships with other people. Even when your nearest and dearest friend dies, you can watch him die and say, I don't care. That's stoicism. It's defined by becoming indifferent to both pleasure and pain. Now, that's certainly not what's in Paul's mind. He has the idea of self-sufficiency, but not in exactly the same way that the Stoics defined that. Paul did not suppress his emotion. He did not seek to abolish emotion. He had a heart that that cared very deeply about life and others, but yet he was still content. 
So if you would direct your attention now to verse 12, Paul is going to explain verse 11 in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. This is the first of three contrasts that Paul gives in this verse. So first of all, what it means to be content in any circumstance means to know how to get along with humble means. That's on one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum is prosperity. Polar opposites. Humble means. What does that mean? It's poverty. It's poverty. Paul knew how to be content in seasons of poverty. This is what we have such a difficult time understanding. It is very difficult for us to wrap our understanding around what Paul is saying here. Paul learned to be content with little, satisfied with little material possessions. Paul knew what it was like to be poor. He was poor most of his Christian life, and in those seasons of poverty, he was content. But he also knew how to be content in seasons of prosperity. This, I believe, is harder than the first. The most discontented people are the most prosperous people. Isn't that true? Listen to Spurgeon. Quote, These are both hard lessons to learn. I do not know which is the more difficult of the two. Probably it is easier to know how to go down than to go up. How many Christians have I seen grandly glorifying God in sickness and poverty when they have come down in the world? And ah, how often have I seen other Christians dishonoring God when they have grown rich or when they have risen to a position of influence among their fellow men. He's right. He's exactly right. So here's a warning. Be careful about prosperity. It is a trial to your spiritual life. It in and of itself is not sin. It may be from God, but listen, be warned about what it can do to your soul. You know John D. Rockefeller at one time was the richest man in the world. He was asked how much money is enough. Do you remember what he said? Just a little bit more. I mean, he had more money than anybody in the world, and yet he wasn't satisfied He wants more and more and more and more. The more we get, the more we want. That's the nature of us. Now, let me just also say this to bring some balance here. If the Lord prospers you materially and financially, then praise God and enjoy what he has given to you. It's not a sin to have prosperity. Paul had seasons in his life where there was a measure of prosperity. But here's what you must do. You must learn how to live in prosperity if it comes. And that's what Paul is saying he learned to do. Don't want more and more as Rockefeller did. Be satisfied with whatever God gives to you. 
Now, with that said, let's ask this question. How much do you need, materially speaking, to be content? What would you say? Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're going to be surprised at what Paul says here. In fact, you might wish this verse weren't here because it is very convicting. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. He's talking about money. He's talking about false teachers. One of the marks of false teachers is that they do what they do for money, for filthy lucre. So he says in verse 6, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The false teachers had a facade of godliness, and it was all about to get money, to get gain. And so Paul is sort of sarcastic here in verse 6. Godliness is a means of great gain, not materially, but spiritually when accompanied by contentment. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. Now notice verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be what? Content. How much do we need physically and materially to be content in this world? Two things, food, covering. Listen, did you eat breakfast today? Do you have clothes on today? Maybe you'd like to have less on because it's hot. If you have food and you have clothes, you have everything you need, materially speaking, to be content. So are you? Are you content? I remember a guy that I grew up with. We've known each other since elementary school. We lived in the same neighborhood. When we became adults, he is a, he's not a Christian, and I was witnessing to him one day at the gym, and he told me, and I'll never forget, he says, I could not be happy if I didn't have a 3,000-square-foot house. And it's just him, his wife, and two kids. Well, that isn't what Paul says. I have to have a 3,000-square-foot house to be happy. I have to have the latest iPhone. I have to have the latest thing from Best Buy. That isn't what he says. I have to look a certain way. I have to have this kind of family. I have to live here or do this. You got food? You got some clothes? That's all you need. That's all you need. What a rebuke to us, that is. Now back to Philippians chapter 4. He says, In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. This is the second contrast of the verse. Being filled was used of fattening animals for slaughter. It is the idea of having more than enough to eat. Paul had seasons of his life where he knew what it was to be filled, to be satisfied with food. And the opposite of that is going hungry. He knew what it was like to have enough to eat, and he knew what it was like to have nothing to eat. Again, two polar opposites. Two contrasts. He knew what it was like to have a gourmet meal, and he knew what it was like to have no meal at all. In fact, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he said this about his life, often without food. Often without food. He spent a lot of time hungry. But in either circumstance, he learned the secret of being content. 
whether he was filled or whether he was hungry. And then he gives a third contrast, both of having abundance and suffering need. So whether Paul lived in prosperity or poverty, whether he was well-fed or not fed, whether he had more than enough or whether he didn't have enough, he learned the secret of being content. Why? Because he was satisfied with whatever God gave to him even if it was little. So be satisfied in whatever God gives to you. But still, how was Paul able to have this kind of mindset? How was he able to have this kind of an attitude? That brings us to point number three, the third component of contentment, being enabled by God's power, verse 13, very well-known verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The reason that Paul was able to be content in his life, no matter what was going on circumstantially, is because God strengthened him. God enabled him to be content. So here Paul transforms the word content. For both the Stoics and Paul, to be content meant to be satisfied regardless of circumstances. But for the Stoics, it meant to be self-reliant. And for Paul, it meant to be God-reliant. Paul did not depend upon himself. He was not self-reliant. He was reliant upon God to make his heart content. Paul lived in utter dependence upon God for all things. God was the strength of his heart. God was his portion forever. And you'll note the term all things. I can do all things. That is so abused. The context defines the all things. Listen, this is not a promise that you can score more touchdowns hit more home runs, or if you're overweight and out of shape in middle age, this is not a promise that you can win the Ironman triathlon. That is not what Paul is saying, and that's how I have heard it oftentimes quoted and interpreted by many people who aren't careful to look at the context of the all things. What are the all things that he is talking about here? It's all of the life circumstances that he has just described. Poverty, prosperity, being well-fed, being hungry, having an abundance or suffering need. It's all about contentment. No matter what your circumstances are in life, you can be content by the enablement of Christ. So Christ is the strength of Paul's heart. He is the unending fountain of strength and power for Paul. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is another way of saying this about Paul, because Paul knew God because Christ was his shepherd. He had all that he needed. He was sufficient for him. I want to read something I read. It's a a legendary story about a man who met Paul at this time in his life when he was in prison. Listen to it carefully. Legend has it that a wealthy merchant during Paul's day had heard about the apostle and had become so fascinated that he determined to visit him. So when passing through Rome, he got in touch with Timothy and arranged an interview with Paul, the prisoner. 
Stepping inside his cell, the merchant was surprised to find the apostle looking rather old and physically frail, but he felt at once the strength, the serenity, and the magnetism of the man who relied on Christ as his all in all. They talked for some time, and finally the merchant left. Outside the cell, he asked Timothy, "'What's the secret of this man's power? I've never seen anything like it before.'" Did you not guess, replied Timothy, Paul is in love. The merchant looked puzzled. In love, he asked. Yes, said Timothy, Paul is in love with Jesus Christ. The merchant looked even more bewildered. Is that all, he asked. Timothy smiled and replied, that is everything. So, beloved, what is the secret of contentment? It's Christ. It is to be captivated and empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what is your picture of contentment? I have some friends right now who are in Hawaii. They've posted Facebook pictures sitting on the beach looking at beautiful things. Is that your picture of contentment? It would be until the day came when you had to go home or when the bill came in the mail. Here is the picture of contentment that Paul provides. He has lost his freedom. He can no longer come and go as he once could. He is no longer able to visit churches and plant new ones. He is chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a period of two years. He has lost many of the comforts of life that he had previously known and enjoyed. He is awaiting trial before Caesar and potentially facing an execution. But even in those circumstances, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content because of the power of Christ. So as Epaphroditus walks into that room where Paul is for the very first time, he did not find a dejected man. He did not find a complaining man. He did not find a discontent man. He found a man who was full of joy and contentment because of the power of Christ. So listen, if Paul could be content in his circumstances, so can we. You know why? Because the same source of power that was available to make Paul content is available to you and to I. And that is the person of Christ. There was a Puritan who sat down to his meal, and as he looked down at the table, he saw all that he had was a small piece of bread and a little bit of water. Here's how he responded. What? All of this and Jesus Christ too? That is the spirit of contentment. Jesus Christ is our all in all. And anything else God gives to us is a bonus. It is a bonus. So as we conclude, if you would take your bulletin and look at the meditation theme, we have a couple of points to consider The secret of contentment is our theme this morning. Number one, contentment is a spiritual attitude that must be learned. 
Number two, contentment is the opposite of being covetous. It is being satisfied with what you have because you trust God's providence, are satisfied with whatever the Lord gives you, and are empowered by Christ. I have one more thing to say. If you would turn very quickly to Ephesians 5, 5. And in just a moment, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. And as you well know, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we examine our hearts to make sure that we do not partake of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And in view of all that we've said thus far, let's prepare our hearts by looking at Ephesians 5, 5. Look what Paul says. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The one thing that I want to draw out of that verse is what Paul says about the covetous man. What does he call that kind of a man? What does it mean to covet? It means to commit the sin of idolatry. To commit the sin of idolatry. What is an idol? It is a God substitute. When you and I covet something, we are at that moment dissatisfied with God, and we are at that moment pursuing and worshiping an idol. And so as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, ask God to help you to confess your own personal idols, idols of the heart, things that you are prone to covet, and ask him to teach you the secret of contentment. Let's spend some moments preparing our hearts this morning. Father, we, we thank you that you are enough for us. We thank you that you are the all-sufficient God and that only you can satisfy the soul. And so, Father, we confess to you any of the things that our hearts are prone to covet, We confess them to you as idols of the heart, of things that displease and offend you, and of things that bring us no joy. 
Lord, would you teach us what it means to be content in whatever circumstances we are in. Help us to trust in your providential care over our lives. Help us to be satisfied with whatever you provide for us, even if it is little. And Father, help us to be strengthened by the power of Christ. For without Him, it would be impossible for us to ever be content. We thank you for our Lord's great sacrifice for us. We thank you that all of the sins that we have committed or ever will commit have been laid upon him. And he has suffered and bled and died in our place, absorbing the full wrath of God against us. And because of his death alone, we have peace with you. May we honor you and worship you in these moments as we celebrate and remember your death for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.